0: Welcome to Beer and a Movie, the podcast where we talk about two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I am one of your hosts, Dave Gurney. I'm here with
1: Carlos Cooper and Joe Hilliard.
2: And uh, this week we are, you know, of course, going to talk about... uh, some movies that we watched and we're going to drink some beer while doing so and talk about those, but not this last weekend, but the weekend before was a really super not great, huge bummer of a weekend. Um, because Saturday, uh, we lost a very great, uh, director who we have spoken, uh, about on this podcast before, who I know I really like. And I think I can speak for everyone else that, um, they also very much enjoy. And that director is Lynn Shelton. Uh, we had talked about uh, Sword of Trust. Uh, we talked about that on episode 59. And uh, that was an especially tough one to deal with because she was very young. She's only 54 and had been feeling somewhat ill leading up to her passing. Um, obviously, it's like very hard to go into a hospital and stuff. So they were treating it as strep throat. And then she collapsed and within 24 hours had passed of a rare undiagnosed uh, blood disease. Um, last, so nine days ago from today, uh, Mark Marin, her partner, re-released his episode with her. And that was a really tough one to listen to him intro because they had been together for quite a while and were together at the time of her passing. But um, I actually recorded something at the top of last week's episode to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. And I just felt that uh, that episode, the Beastie Boys episode we did last week with being John Malkovich didn't actually have anything to do with that. And I didn't, I don't know. I just felt weird tacking it on at the beginning of the episode, just like me, you know, acknowledging or whatever. And I, I'm glad that we did it this way cause it's more relevant and like, uh, more suited to what we're going to be discussing this week. But it was a, it was tragic and mm-hmm. watching this week's movies i was constantly thinking about her and her particular directorial style and approach mm-hmm. to filmmaking um and the results that it yields um i just, i couldn't help but like making that connection so even though i feel like we we're just going to briefly touch on it at the beginning as I was going through the three films we're going to talk today, I was like, well, it's going to be very hard for me, especially, you know, given everything to not like yeah. think about her and her style of filmmaking. Right. And the movies that we've discussed of hers in conjunction with today's
0: selections. Right. There's, there's definitely a stylistic connection, and that'll become apparent as we start talking about the films. There's also the connection there that it, we lost another, um, you know, figure of uh, cinema and uh, and television and just entertainment in general. The same day, uh, Fred Willard, um, quite a bit older. You know, he was eighty six, and so not necessarily unexpected when when people get into that age bracket that uh, you know natural causes kind of take take them down. But um, but nonetheless, a sad loss. Um, somebody who I grew up seeing in lots of different things. Uh, remember him from the TV series Real People which was big when I was really young. Um, And I've even rewatched some of that stuff on Amazon Prime recently it's funny enough they have those uh, episodes there that are available. And uh, strangely my young daughters are are getting a kick out of it They kind of like it's early reality television you know. Um, But but he was you know an actor beyond that and many different things known for his you know ability to do comedy but also with a really kind of straight, deadpan style that really lent itself to these film collaborations, these films that he did with Christopher Guest through the late 90s, early 2000s, and really going beyond that, they, they continued to work together. But uh, I can't even remember exactly what brought us to it, but even before his passing, it had come up that, uh, I think, Carlos, you hadn't seen any of these Christopher Guest films, really, yeah. that, I, that we're re- referring to, yeah so so we thought it would be a great opportunity to dip back into these films from as i said the late 90s into the early 2000s this um in particular trio of fake documentary or mockumentary films that guest made with kind of an ensemble of players that carried through although a few people kind of dip in and out fred willard was in each of them as was guest himself as also was eugene levy who collaborated on the uh, screenplays with him although that We'll get to that as a stylistic thing these screenplays weren't necessarily traditional in the sense that you know the lines were written because they were heavily improvised um, but I've already said a lot and again so this episode in a sense is our homage to Fred Willard it's also in a sense an homage to Lynn Shelton uh, and, and her work but before we get to homaging anything we should get our glasses filled Joe what, what did you share with us today.
1: Well, our march through Texas continues. This week we're drinking a IPA from Magnolia, Texas. But, guys, I looked at it online on Beer Advocate. The users call this the third best American IPA going. It's got a reputation. So this is their Yellow Rose. Uh, IPA. Uh, they they say it's a chalk white head with a very clean malt backbone. The hope the hops impart strong grapefruit, pineapple, and blueberry flavor and aroma. A strong beer that is extremely quaffable. And if you look at the drink by date, or rather the brew date, it's four twenty twenty twenty. Oh yeah. <laughs> I um, went and picked up a four-pack of this and their Jabberwocky Imperial IPA after people were gushing and gushing about it on one of our locally-based Facebook groups about beer, which I trust that all of our folks have found their local group and are a part of.
0: Yes, this has been a long-sought-after beer even outside of Texas, especially outside of Texas. Sadly, even here in Corpus Christi, we haven't been able to get our hands on it because it hasn't been distributed down here. So just very recently in the past few weeks, it started showing up. So thank you, Joe, for getting out there and pulling this diamond in for us. Let's hope that it lives up to its reputation. I've had it in the past, but it's been a couple years, and so it'll be fun to, uh, to try this one again. Already, I'm encouraged by the aroma as I poured it into my glass.
2: Uh, so I'm not familiar with Magnolia, Texas. Whereabouts is that?
1: that's about halfway between college station and Houston interesting go okay I stopped in there one time
0: when I was going from college station to Houston just to have the experience of the brewery it was very low-key very cool family-friendly kind of environment um super nice people there and I I don't know if they've expanded since and and thus getting more distribution or whatever but uh whatever the case is good people and in the past at least good beer
2: I poured mine with slightly too much vigor. And it's got a, got a fat there.
1: head
0: on it
2: waiting to... Hey, well, guys,
1: let's, <laughs> I was going to say, if we, if you, there's all kinds of ways we could get into this. But if you go back to episode 34, uh-huh. that was our Spinal Tap episode. Mm-hmm. Rob Reiner directing, but introducing many, many people to this improvisational comedy is that what we're going to call it, improvisational comedy, a curb your enthusiasm, all of Christopher Guest's films along this vein? Yeah, no, and, and Guest has done a few outside of this, but you're right. He,
0: he really kind of, in launching this trajectory with Waiting for Guffman, it was a continuation of – this experiment that he had done with Reiner and McKeon, Michael McKeon and uh, Harry Shearer, with the Spinal Tap uh, film back in, now that came out and was it eighty three or eighty two? Anyway, eighty two. Okay, um, you know, again, there this sort of parodic look at uh, rock documentary about a band that's kind of on the decline, but here, you know, taking, uh, you know, with, with his. Triplet of films that, that we're going to be talking about this episode, including Guffman, which we're going to start with here, really taking a look at, at more mundane things, I think, or, or, or smaller scale, um, but still an interest in putting on a show, right? I mean, like the concerts of Spinal Tap here, we have a stage musical that produced. Um, with the others, we also have kind of uh, you know stage events or or events in arenas that are going on. So there is this kind of through line. But um, but here, taking a small town uh, in Missouri that is having their sesquicentennial, right? Am I am I getting that right? Their hundred fiftieth anniversary. Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, yeah,
2: that is a that is a tough word to get through. <laughs> sesquicentennial. Yeah, which uh, makes it funnier. Uh, <laughs>
0: yes. Right. Right. Um, so a very small town that's that's staging a musical about its history, the town's history um, with, you know, various folks throughout the community contributing. And in particular, um, guest character, uh, Corky St. Clair, who's kind of a transplant to the town, this this guy who had spent years in New York uh, as an aspiring actor and, and perhaps director and comes back or, or, or moves to Missouri and, and kind of. Carves out his niche as the theater guru and and starts a community theater and they're kind of launching this project and it's framed as if it is a documentary of the making of this musical the preparations for this musical.
1: Yeah, and, and you can't you can't discount his connections to off 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 Broadway. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> exactly,
2: uh, the theater just keeps calling him back. What uh, I mean, one of the, you know, David, you had mentioned that. You know he, we spinal taps about big arena rock and roll or whatever, and then these are obviously you know as you stated much more dialed back, smaller things, smaller towns, you know whatever. But it's one of the things that makes it so funny is the like juxtaposition of the teeny tiny town they're in that nobody's ever heard of, and uh-huh. the fact that you know when you first are you know being introduced to everybody, they're all saying like yes. You know, our sesquicentennial is going to set the 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 tone for what everyone else in Missouri is going to do for theirs, and everyone's <laughs> right. looking to us for what are you going to do? And we're right. you know we're writing the the book on how to celebrate your hundred and fiftieth anniversary. And I also looked up. I tried to look up when Corpus Christi was founded. Uh, it just I don't know. It made me curious, and I couldn't find a hard date on like Wikipedia or anything. I don't know if anyone knows, but
1: yeah, I don't know. No that, that is odd. So Christopher Guest leads his cast, played by Eugene Levy, the dentist in town, who is going to use this opportunity to scratch that itch of talent that he's never been able to explore. Uh, Fred- he, he
0: wasn't the class clown himself, but he sat next to the class clown and studied his.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's all you got to do. Uh, uh, Catherine O'Hara, who was in all three films as well. Oh. Plays, uh, plays the wife of Fred Willard, uh, right. the Albertsons. Now, Fred Willard, of course, is a guy who's clearly gone to a bunch of acting workshops and knows all of the terminology and needs you to know that he knows. knows all of the term- <laughs> <Yeah>. terminology. Parker <laughs> Posey. Yeah, strike that, yeah. <laughs> okay. Strike it, strike it. Yeah. Uh, Parker Posey, who I believe is in all three films as well, that we'll yes. be discussing today, is uh, a Dairy Queen employee who looks at who looks to Corky and Corky's fantasies as her ticket out of this, this small town. And then you've got, a, a, I'm going to say, other people who aren't back for the next couple of films who don't make it into the troupe. I was talking about Johnny Savage's character, that actor. Uh, but then you know, it's rounded out by Larry Miller, who's in all three films. It's rounded out. And what you're beginning to see wow. here, or, or what we will notice mm. when we get to the second film, is that he's creating a theater troupe and we're watching the film of a theater troupe yeah. and but and it's fitting then that the setting of waiting for Guffman is small town theater because mm-hmm. i've been involved in theater for for a large portion of my life and what makes this film amazing to me is how real it is how how well he has been able to distill Every single person that you might find in a local theater into six or seven distinct characters and then then give that material to people who probably were raised in theater themselves, improvisational theater, certainly. And you've got six, seven actors who are having a ball and the audience just gets to go along for that ride. I, I love Waiting for Guffman. Yeah,
0: this this I remember um, when this film came out, and I did I didn't get to see it in the theater at the time, but I, I was in college, and I remember when it came out on video. It was probably VHS, to be honest. I don't think we were at DVD yet. Um, and I, and I remember, you know, a friend who we, we were both fans of comedy, saying like, "Oh, I've heard this is really good. We need to check this out." You know, Christopher Guest, Spinal. We knew the Spinal Tap connection. We knew what you know, kind of what it was going for. That it was sort of improv based, at least in terms of the dialogue. And so we're like, "Yeah, let's check this out." And it was. I remember it taking a little while to really work its magic because I had just not seen anything quite like it before. It. It. I remember feeling like is this funny? I remember questioning myself, like it seems too subtle to be, but then as it kind of works it and you, and you kind of realize, Oh, these little subtle ticks and these strange turns of phrase that they throw in there. And sometimes the mistakes they make it it is, I mean, and, and it's the kind of thing that I think gets richer upon subsequent viewings. I mean, there was a time where I probably watched this film at least a half dozen times, fairly close to one another but it had been a long time since i'd gone back to it i found it really satisfying to go back to it and find that those same lines were just as funny to me now as as they eventually became
2: it's almost like the entire joke runs its course and then there's like two or three beats and then you're like that was hilarious, and like I, 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 I found myself like right at the beginning of the next scene, start bursting out laughing, because yeah. I realized like what I had just witnessed, and like the culmination of like two minutes of like stream of consciousness kind of joke construction that was happening. Like. Uh, and I also, I mean, Christopher Guest is
0: crazy. Like the
2: dude is a crazy good character actor. Like he he is. If anybody.
0: And, and as you see these films next to each other, he's the one who transforms the most, right? Yeah. I mean, each one of his characters across these films is so distinct and so different. Now, this this is maybe the point where I should interject here, something that did give me some pause watching this one again. How do we feel about this Corky St. Clair character in terms of its embrace of gay stereotypes of that moment? And, uh, well, I mean, that, that still persists. Yeah. I mean— and the time at the time, I remember seeing it as, and I think it still is in some ways, a loving look at those kinds of dejected theater people who don't quite get where they want to go, right? I mean, obviously, he tried to have this career. He didn't. He's also trying to cover up the fact that he's gay. He talks about this wife, Bonnie, that never yeah, appears. Wife, or yeah. that's to, right? You know, like he's buying clothes for Bonnie. We assume that he's actually behind the scenes dressing as a woman on his own because he has no why. you know, I don't know how <laughs> it gave me more pause now watching it. Like I said, probably a decade later than, than I had last. Um, and, and I've, you know, I think we've, we've made some strides in terms of how we portray gay characters on screen, but to think that this was, you know, the prominent gay character in the film, although there's also that kind of joke about, um, Who's the character there? Uh, is it Christopher Hitchcock? Is the um, the 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 town council member who? Oh who, God, he's so funny.
1: Quirky, quirky! Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so funny. I, yeah. David, it doesn't bother me at all. It doesn't okay. bother me at all, and it's because I've been involved in the theater enough to know that this is not a jab at any kind of homosexual, homosexual right. community. It is a caricature of a certain type within a. Certain type of certain type of people. I mean, yeah. and he nails it, right. but, but he's uh, he's never using it to hurt or make fun. In my opinion, it gave me no pause.
2: Okay, uh, I'm close to Joe. It gave me slight pause, but I also feel like a the time, you know, it was slightly different, um, and B, as you know, as opposed to like. For instance, um, episode three or four, when we watched American Pie again, like, uh, you can't make, oh, the time. Eugene Levy connection. Yeah, Eugene Levy <laughs> connection. You can't make a, oh, it was just the time excuse for some of the stuff in that movie. You know what I mean? Because some mm-hmm. of it is, like, very like problematic in like a more violent way or a more like harmful way. And this one, I don't, I didn't ever feel like I was like laughing at this guy. I just thought he was like, thought he was funny, but not in like a, yeah. And I never felt that any of his portrayal was malevolent. Granted, I'm like not, you know, the person being portrayed. So, you know, it's, I, I don't have the, you know, anywhere near the definitive, Opinion on that kind right. of thing, um, yeah. But and I, I really didn't remember him mentioning his wife until almost the very end. Uh, yeah, which I thought, it, which what, which once it does, like you've built this character over the course of a film, and then all of a sudden he's like, yeah, you know, just like buying clothes for my wife, and I ran into so and so, and like, and it's just mm-hmm. funny, like that. It kind of comes out of nowhere almost. Um, yeah. So yeah, you know, it's a, uh, you know. It, it, that one is more like kind of on the fence. Um, but overall, it doesn't, you know, it didn't like, it didn't bother me. And I was like, okay, this is cool. Like, you know, it's, it's still a fun movie. One thing I'll say is I appreciate the amount of Parker Posey that we're getting in these movies. A very criminally <laughs> underrated actress, I feel. She is a, someone who, when you say her name, most people don't know who you're talking about. As actually, as is with most of this cast. like, yeah. Like Parker Posey is someone that, You know, she's been in a lot of things, but not in, like, a real prominent way. Never had, like, a really, at least in my, like... Viewing a pop right. culture but, and experience like a it, really huge breakthrough or anything. Well, this like, is
0: where you not having been around really for the 90s probably hobbles you a little bit just because she was, at least for like 90s indie cinema, she was kind of a thing, right? I mean, right. like kicking how, and screaming, how, you know, well, kicking and screaming, party girl, uh, the house of yes, so, you know, there, there were a series. Well, Daisy, yeah, I was
2: gonna say Daisy Confuses is the biggest, you know, thing. there were
0: all these films that she kind of you know had had kind of standout performances in even if she wasn't maybe even the main character she still kind of stood out and you know this this was coming on the heels of those so i remember her feeling it felt like she was on the precipice of becoming something even bigger yeah that didn't quite happen i mean she she she's had a good career i think
2: i i think so too and i yeah. and i guess that's what i'm saying is that um the she got close but then it didn't uh You know, she didn't hit that like super mainstream stride. Like, you know, Fred Willard, Spinal Tap is a huge like movie and a, you know, touchstone of pop culture. And then he was like in the Anchorman stuff. Obviously, those are huge. Um, And, you know, had some had some moments in there where he was. And then, you know, he kind of reemerged in everyone's lives through like the Jimmy Kimmel show. He had really funny recurring bits on that um and that's like a much more mainstream thing i guess it's because they are character actors you know that kind of comes with the territory of being a character actor is that you can disguise yourself as so many different people and you're not playing ben affleck in every movie like ben
1: affleck does you know you're a movie star but anyway but you've also got that notion of this theater troupe and we're watching people act and i there's something about this improvisational comedy subgenre that can make perhaps people believe that there's no strong acting here uh you know i think another thing i, I would want
0: to highlight about waiting for guffman that's certainly there once we get to the third film a mighty wind but kind of drops out in best in show the presence of the musical uh pieces oh, so that they have uh made for this which actually um i hadn't even looked into but you know watching it again now realizing that Shearer and McKeon, even though they aren't in this film on screen, they co-wrote those songs. Yeah. So, you know, Guest Guess got together with his collaborators from Spinal Tap to create these songs. And my God, are those perfect, like... They're better than they should be, but just bad enough to be believable, yeah. and, you know, and, and the, the choreography, because you get the, you know, the third act of the film is essentially them doing this musical yeah. and you're seeing them do these songs, Stool Boom, you know. Stool Boom <laughs> is so funny. Which, which is just great. Nothing ever happens on Mars uh, with Eugene Levy as
1: a an alien creature, yeah. you know, coming, oh, it's oh, just, well, because we failed to just, mention that aliens had visited Blaine. That's right. the, yeah, part that's, of the, the culture. And when Brink they had interviewed... any
0: David Cross
1: cameo there. Yes, yeah, when, the David
2: Cross cameo so good. But which which
0: when I, they wish he, I wish he had showed up in these other films, but that same. was just one time. Yes, yeah.
1: yeah. When they interviewed the guy that got probed, the guy that, that got, got taken onto the ship... Oh, yeah, Paul but, Dooley, yeah. I... I, I yeah, that might have been the most consistent laughter of the whole film for me because he just says it so casually. I got probed, then they took me over there. I pro they probed me. A bunch of them
2: all came together and probed him, <laughs> right. not at the same it time was, individually.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and it gets it gets into the the. I want to be on set of one of these films. What is written down and what is not written down? Right. It's fast. It's fascinating to me yeah I've,
2: I've, I've got to believe that it's the curb your enthusiasm model where and i think uh swanberg also uh, i i remember hearing an interview with jake johnson uh when drinking buddies came out talk about it but it's got to be like here's an outline of the film
0: mm-hmm, here's mm-hmm. the
2: scene we're doing right now and at some point you got to say this
0: like this right. is know, the but, but- line
2: with the information and then other because like
0: and and i i don't even know if have to go quite as far as that but you know like say that scene that you're talking about there my my understanding from what i've read is that he would give somebody like paul Dooley basically you know the page that would be there for that is you are somebody who is one of these people of blaine who believes they've been abducted and has been probed anally so you need to find a fun way to talk about that and i'm sure they probably do like 20 takes so where many just, takes so you many know, spouts off, say whatever. Probed, says, say
1: probed over and over. But yeah, yeah. You, you're, Paul, the best thing you're doing is saying probed yeah. over and over and over. Right. Yeah, yeah, it makes it funny. Then, oh, but yeah, that happens throughout the film. Yeah. 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 yeah,
0: it is. And it's wonderful. I mean, it's, it's fun to see these really talented comic actors who tend to play more kind of side characters or you know the comic relief in films that they do appear in you know eugene levy among them catherine o'hara or whatever you know who haven't been leading women or leading men of their films in the past really get the spotlight and just get to stretch out and use those improv skills that they have, you know, yeah. again, Levy, and O'Hara from Second, Second City, City, but, you know, all, all of them have had various, uh, you know, uh, training over the years that you can tell has has led them to a point where they're able to do this. And it's just it's it's like really watching people who are super inventive and able to riff off of each other and do these things and just see them do that in the most uh you know, conducive environment possible to allowing them to play that. You know, again, we're framing it as a documentary, so there's going to be little slips, and sometimes you're going to repeat words, and sometimes you're, but that's what happens in real life. That's how people talk, so it makes sense. And it's just, it's great. I, I mean, that, yeah.
2: Yeah, and uh, there was one thing I wanted to mention when you started talking about the music, but Parker Posey's audition is really so good. Uh, mm. it's that scene was so, so good.
0: I, uh, I was cracking up at it. Uh, yeah
2: she really goes for it. Um but And
0: I, and I love Fred Willard and Catherine O'Hara doing Midnight at the Oasis with all their weird little interjections of they, uh, dialogue. Oh my god. They were
2: god. they were dripping head to toe. <laughs> like their outfits and like the sneaker game on I think you wore toes outfit. Like, I think I have. have I, I when they walked in I was
0: like, "Damn." That's they're getting fits <laughs> I mean, off in that scene, and
1: how they're and how Carlos, they're
0: kind of be a good Halloween costume for you and Kylie yeah. someday. Some, you know. And how right. they
1: how they go me. into that audition and start messing with people to like mess with people's heads. <laughs> I mean, there are so many intricate details, yeah. uh, which makes me believe that they workshop the hell out of this thing just to yeah. get it into this product, and the product is is just incredible.
0: Right. And and what you know, maybe we can end here or if you guys have something else to say. But I mean, I think one of the great testaments to this is that I come away from this film not feeling like community theater is a joke to be laughed at, but it's a shared experience. It's something like I don't think they are making fun of these people. I think they are having fun with them. You know, do you know what I mean? Like I and I've talked to people and I don't know, Joe, you're you've been involved more than I have. I'm not a community theater person, but I know folks who are and they love this movie. I mean, those who I've spoken to, they see, as you're saying, this kind of reflection of what they're doing. Exaggerations in some cases. But it's not about shitting on community theater. It's about kind of saying. This is, this is real stuff that people do. This is a real form of entertainment and real energy and hard work that gets poured into it, and you see the result. And, man, I wouldn't mind spending an hour and a half in that gymnasium watching them do that. <laughs> yeah, be so funny. I, I
1: think, David, what you're talking about is – I mean going back to what I said earlier, and that is that this is – a slice of reality. I imagine that dog show owners have a understanding of best in show that the three of us don't have. Right. Dog show, you know, people that are involved in that world. And I imagine that people that are heavily involved in the folk world have a even a deeper affinity for a mighty wind. Because yeah. he's showing you a slice of, of life here. Right. Right.
0: Yeah, big so fan of the Yeah. Do we have an affinity for uh, Lone Pint still with uh, the yellow rose?
2: good beer very good beer uh,
1: i short, yeah, sh- short answer yes for me yeah. david there's a this this is a well balanced beer that is doing a lot of different things i'm enjoying this very very much
2: yeah actually well, you know to just to just to kind of uh put a a period on what joe said you know we've especially since the quarantine has started we've had some like less than stellar IPAs, you know, some like real malty, yes. just like aggressively uh, unbalanced type of beers. And this is one, it is, it does have a, um, it does have a, like a present malt bill to it. You know, it's not like one of those like quintuple dry hopped ones where you're really only getting the floral stuff from the hops coming in. Like it does have that, you know, kind of bold bodied, semi more traditional IPA, but it, it but it, it, the hops come in and they just the way that it should balance everything out to like yeah. really sit on your palate the way that it's supposed to. And I think that as far as the spectrum of IPAs is concerned that, you know, given the current like uh, craft beer landscape, I think this falls perfectly in between like the haziest of the haze and the most bitter high IBU, like West coast kind of approach. And it sits perfectly in the center of those two things. And that makes it a very good beer.
0: Yeah. I, and I, and I think especially impressive, I mean, when you realize it's a single malt, single hop, right? Or, or what people refer did, to as a I smash.
2: Did, I did not realize that.
0: It is. It just uses Pilsner malt, which tends to be kind of lighter in flavor, right? I mean, so that that explains why, yes, there is a malt presence there, but it's not intense. It's not overpowering. the mosaic hops which you know we we love mosaic hops and and they have all that kind of juicy citrusy you know you do have those grapefruit notes there's some of that um you know as joe was saying pineapple that especially in the nose and it just i mean it's a gorgeous little single malt single hop ipa that with the minimum amount of ingredients i think creates something that is really outstanding and remarkable, and I am so happy that we are going to be able to get this in our market now.
1: You need two of them to really enjoy this beer, because I keep going back for another sip. Did I just just taste pineapple? Uh, Sip. No, 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 that was blueberry. Sip. Nope, maybe (laughs) it was pineapple, and it got me through this uh, pint, and I like the bottle. I like the shape of the bottle. They're doing something innovative, interesting. uh, In no time at all.
0: Yeah. Great stuff. Thank you, Joe. You're welcome. Uh, So we are going to go a little bit unorthodox with this episode because we're doing three films. We're going to do a couple breaks. So we'll do our first break now. When we come back, we'll have a new beer for our glass. And we'll be talking about, we've already said, best in show.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And we're back.
0: (laughs) Oh, we sure are and uh and ready to get some drink in our glass uh carlos you a, f- a friend of the podcast uh, brought this beer to us
2: not a friend of the podcast actually i don't think oh. he listens
0: an enemy uh, of can the we, podcast can we shame David. him into listening now uh, I, don't know.
2: I yeah now that now that we're drinking beer that he has uh, provided uh we, we 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 sure can actually i didn't ask him how he got this maybe he was traveling for work or something because he's still in the coast guard um But he, you know, came to buy some records the other day. And when, you know, I I went out to him curbside, he was like, oh, hey, like I brought this for you. You know, you can only get it in Alaska. And, um, you know, I've just been he said that he said he had been giving them out to like people, uh, people like at work or friends or whatever, and had only had one. And uh, and he was like, man. I kind of fucked up. I should have kept more of these, <laughs> uh, but but yeah, he gave me those the other day, and I thought, you know, good uh, good opportunity to get into something that we normally wouldn't be able to purchase down here. Um, shame someone into being a new listener. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, it, it's probably it's probably hard to hear a podcast on like the big ass planes that he flies around. So uh, that's you know, I'll you get, know, I'll cut him some slack.
0: <laughs> he's got to get some. Noise-canceling headphones. Yeah. yeah, that's that's what it comes down. But to. Yeah,
2: this is a this is a beer. Um, it, it's an IPA, uh, so we're going IPA again from Denali yeah. Brewing. Um, I think from what he from what he was telling me, Denali is like one of the biggest like peaks. Mountains in the country? Right, something. yeah. a uh, Huge, huge mountain. It says, the as winter frees its icy grip on the highest mountain in North America, Denali's many <laughs> tributaries rush to quench untamed places near and far, drawing inspiration from the lushness borne by these local waters. Twister Creek IPA balances peak hops atop a robust blend of malts for an unfiltered, in-the-flow, Alaska-style adventure. Uh, it is 6.5%, so pretty close to what we just had, um, I think, with the Yellow Rose... Isn't that six point eight? Yeah, so uh, yeah, you know, keeping uh keeping everything kind of ar- around the same same level. This one is a, l- a little higher, in, actually, that's really interesting. Oh, never mind. Sorry, uh, a little higher in IBU, seventy one IBU. So we're gonna get a little more bitterness on this one. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway,
1: uh, yeah. We're hey, Dave- um, David, what are you having on the nose there? I have a lot of malt. Yeah, I was gonna say. It's
0: interesting, especially just have after having the yellow rose, which has a lot of that citrusy uh, nose to it. This one is much maltier and sweeter on the nose. So I, I I don't know flavor-wise, we'll see. But you know, pouring it into the glass, it's nice and it's it's a nice clear IPA, lightened body, at least in terms of color, uh, like the yellow rose. But the nose is very different. So uh, you know, a- as we go to another IPA, we're going to go to another christopher guest mockumentary this one being best in show uh released in 2000 uh this was uh you know again a return of much of the cast of guffman so we have willard we have o'hara we have levy um who also co-wrote this one we have um carlos's girlfriend parker posey (laughs) michael hitchcock a man can uh, dream right But we've also brought in a few new people. Uh, You know, Carlos has already uh, mentioned the name uh, of um,
2: John Michael Higgins, Higgins,
0: right, who comes in as uh, Scott Donlan. And And then we have, go ahead. Sorry, continue now. Well, I was going to say Michael McKeon coming in, uh, who had helped write the music for Waiting for Guffman, but did not appear on screen. And he plays Scott's partner, uh, Stefan Vanderhoof.
1: So we've got two of the three Spinal Tappers back together for, what to me is my favorite of the Christopher Guest films. Oh, look, show is day. okay, okay. We it's my also favorite.
0: Bring in before we forget Jen- uh, Jennifer Coolidge and Jane Lynch as kind of a pairing there. Oh who, my you know, God, they're making their first appearances. Yeah, and this uh, honestly, this was the first time I remember ever seeing Jane Lynch, and and I remember her standing out in this film, and she still does. It's it's fairly early uh, on
2: in her career, correct?
0: Um, I think you're right. I, th- I think she was maybe somebody who was like a theater actor and wasn't really on screen that much in, in in films. But then kind of found her way. She had done some stuff in the '90s, it looks like, but but was very small scale.
1: Yeah. And then the way that we try and how we pre-produce this podcast to intricately weave things together, Jennifer Coolidge, of course, Stifler's mom from American Pie.
0: That's right. How how much of an American Pie connected episode is this? And, now, and that and that 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 episode
2: trying. was you know about as far away from this one in in terms of our chronology as it could possibly be it was like episode 3 or 4 or something it was mm-hmm. a, it was actually the episode that okay that episode was part of the first recording session that i was ever a part of for beard and movie you're beard. right you right. a part of the first two episodes right um so yeah that is that was many moons ago and it's all coming back full circle. This is our last so episode judge. guys.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> we're leaving on now. <laughs> we're leaving uh, on American but- pie.
1: <laughs> so it, instead of us trying to get to a theatrical presentation at the end of the film we're trying to get to a dog show. We're following six or seven well, different dogs and their we're not handlers. Trying to-
2: we're not trying to get to a dog show. We're trying to win the dog show. Right. That is true. So we're we're seeing
0: characters who are preparing and hoping that their dogs will win.
1: Yes. Right. They have already, of course, they have already pre-qualified to be there. But you're looking at six or seven different dogs and their owners. And in some cases, their handlers. If the owner is not the handler themselves, Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara play a married couple. The Flex with their Norwich Terrier Winky. (laughs) <laughs> Parker Posey, who was a country girl back in Waiting for Guffman, is now yeah. the quintessential yuppie, uh, yuppie. Yeah. narcissist. Yeah. You know, with along with her husband Michael Hitchcock, they both wear braces because you know who knows why. Just say, Christopher Guest is back instead of the flamboyant Corky. He is a uh, you know Southerner, aspiring ventriloquist, owns a fishing bait <laughs> shop. Yeah,
2: yeah. Okay, yeah, now to. <laughs> to interrupt you one more time on, on, the, on the flip side i didn't know that was christopher guest until the end of the movie
1: oh wow what? when
2: the, when the movie ended i was like wait i thought christopher guest was in this movie oh and wow. i looked it, it up tra- and it is, a,
0: it is a transformative role and I and won't...
2: one thing i will say in my defense is my introduction to christopher guest and whenever someone says the name christopher guest i only in my head ever see the six-fingered man from Princess uh, Bride. From Princess that's episode Bride, yeah. 59, or no, I don't know. I was uh, I was trying to make up a number. But 59
1: it, is Lynn Shelton. It was Lynn Shelton. I was, Which, I was
2: trying to make up a random number, and that was the first one that came to my head. With uh, a
1: special guest, Varian Kreiser, that's what uh, Varian. He has a, lo- a local brewer. Yeah, so and, so, uh,
2: so when I think of him, that's what I 57, see.
1: 57. Oh, I, oh, I was episode, so close. Oh. I was so close. Yeah, you weren't far off. You um,
2: weren't far off. But that's what I see in my head when I think of Christopher Guest. So when I saw Harlan it's as far removed from the six fingered man as you can get really kind of. Uh, And yeah, it took me the entire film, but continue. No,
1: in that first scene, and I'll get to the rest of the cast in a second, but in that first scene, you see that we're going a bit of a different direction away from waiting for Guffman, because we're starting with, I think higher stakes, more mature comedy. And then I believe it's the second or third scene where you're introduced to Jennifer Coolidge and her, clearly Anna Nicole Smith inspired yes. elderly husband mm-hmm. and when there's a cutaway to that old man <laughs> who's so just funny. staring off into the distance you realize okay this is going to be a comp- not a completely different ride they're all similar but yeah. a more mature and deeper and richer ride than we saw with waiting for guffman their handler is the jane lynch character that they, they've right. hired her but it turns out of course at the end spoiler alert that she's been having some kind of lesbian affair with uh stifler's mom i'm just going to go with that if y'all <laughs> don't mind and well, then you got the, and then you got well, the la- and the, the last one the shih tzu which is um john michael higgins and michael mckeon playing a uh I, and this is what i was going to say earlier about the, the 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 gay character in waiting for guffman it is clear that Christopher Guest is going to do his part in advancing the notion that gay characters, while some may be more flamboyant than other, and here you've got a pairing of super flamboyant John Michael Higgins and Michael McKeon, who's very, you know, down downplays right, right, whatever his yeah. orientation is until they open up suitcases that are denoted only to completely redecorate their hotel room for the, <laughs> uh, that for part the 36 was... hours that they intend on sleeping that. in it
2: that part yeah. was so good i loved
1: watching them like hang up tapestries and is, stuff yeah and he's on the bed doing his um ed- like egyptian or gypsy dancing <laughs> to the new music he's got
2: eight kimonos for two days
1: right now i think you i'm counting seven kimonos we're only going to be there for 36 hours you're right only only one more only one more it was it was 48
2: hours in his defense uh
1: but (laughs) good point good point i only take two for that
2: period (laughs) yeah i mean two is two's a good amount
0: you're you're right i mean the the uh the scott and stefan a uh, couple, it, I think, does a lot uh, to to help balance uh, my concerns, but it, and they were slight with waiting for government. I mean, it's a very loving portrayal, and it's a and it's a couple like many I've seen. I mean, there, there is that dynamic of you know the more flamboyant. You know, out there, sort of uh, gay character, but then the the uh, the more uh, sort of subdued, uh, you know, as he's referred to by uh, Scott, daddy character that uh, is there for him. So the, I mean, it, and it's a loving couple, and they, and they really are one of the um, most sympathetically portrayed of the of the entire thing. Whereas uh, you know, the the, uh, the heterosexual couple, well, actually, both of them, uh, the the Swans. Hitchcock and Posey are terrifying, <laughs> absolutely terrifying. And uh, and then, you know, you have the flex, Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, which have their own problems <laughs> with, uh, with uh, Cookie's very sordid past, uh, with, with all the different partners she's had, apparently globally, uh, because who oh, yeah. happens to have had some sort of uh, exchange with her, intercourse with her, I should yeah. say. Uh,
2: I'm not
1: wearing underwear.
2: (laughs) Eugene Levy's reactions to all of those are so good, too, because he's like, you know, he—I mean—he's been with this woman for a while. You think he had figured it out at this point, no, or had some me. idea? But every time he looks, just as shocked as it's like his first time figuring any of this. You know, I think he has
1: figured it. it out. He's just not happy that it keeps getting thrown back into his face over <laughs> well, and over for, again. For sure. And right. and, it, and what happens in this film, and it, and the same with Waiting for Guffman, but here even more—you've got a richer tapestry of characters to to look well,
0: at. It's—I think—to to your point, Joe, what, what you were saying earlier. I think you know this is a more mature film. I think it is in many ways, and I think part of that is it has a bigger scope, right? I mean, these are people coming from all these different areas. You have Harlan Pepper from the south. You have, um, you know, uh, Stefan and uh, um, and Scott who seem to be coming from some kind of urban center. Of, I can't think remember. So. You know, you have the, the Flex who are kind of coming from suburbia. You have Florida, you know, yeah, all, all of these different kind of people coming from different places converging on Philadelphia for this dog show, that it allows for there to be a greater diversity of um, different
1: types of characters that come in here. And, uh, and we haven't mentioned the, the, the characters involved only in the dog show and not the dogs themselves. From yes. the From uh, Bob Balaban, who was back for a second time, doing Who's such a such a great actor himself yeah but we so didn't mention him take, in the first half i mean he's the straight man he's always the straight man mm-hmm. and yeah. then the um fred willard is back as <laughs> espn style commentator of the dog show That's itself yes
2: yeah uh bob balaban um i he you know we didn't talk about him a whole lot in the in the first uh half uh, of the episode but uh, or the first third, I guess I should say. But he's he's another one of those guys that is in stuff. And you recognize him when you see him. And by the time that I got to the third of all of these movies, I didn't watch them in order, but the third movie in the three that we're talking about, I was like, I got to find out where this guy is from. Like, I, like, he looks... I thought it would come to me, and it hasn't. And... I totally forgot about Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, and right. he's also he's I don't I don't know if either of you have watched the show, uh, but it's a Ryan Murphy Netflix original called The Politician uh, that takes um, a you know high school class president race and turns it into like you know the stakes of a national presidential race or whatever. It's fantastic, but he plays the like one of the main characters' dads and just a really great. You know, like you said, straight man, just full on, and really can work well in a, in a comedy when he's put in the right spot.
0: Well, and comes out of a motion of uh, motion picture family. I mean, his, his dad was a theater owner and a cable TV producer. I mean, like the the Balaban's, or so it's it's interesting. Um, you know, he yeah, he he's he's got a he's got an interesting story, but he's done a lot of stuff. Has produced stuff. He produced Gosford Park. I mean, he's that's right. Yeah, he, he's, got, he's got a huge career, even though on screen he tends to kind of blend into the backdrop. He's almost yeah, always yeah. kind of just a uh, side character or something. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: But, but with all the outrageous characters that are in this film, you require a couple of straight men <laughs> or women just <laughs> oh, to yes. bal- balance oh, yes. it all out. Right. And what this film does to uh, I think more richly, more deeply, more maturely than Waiting for Guffman is the through line of the gags. The script, in whatever form it exists in, we haven't exactly put our finger on that, is a little more fleshed out here. From the obvious gags like the two left feet that Eugene Levy has. Where, <laughs> oh my god, don't even get you me see, started. You see his shoes and then it pays off briefly, but funny in the the very end. I see, yeah. okay, um, I, I disagree.
2: I think that that I think that is a huge payoff because for me as a viewer, like when it's brought up in the very, very, very beginning of the movie, literally the first time you see him and Catherine O'Hara on screen, you know, you're getting those mockumentary style interviews uh, with each of you know the entire ensemble that will go on to be the crux of the film, and you know it is kind of just snuck into a story. He's talking about meeting his wife, and he's like, "Yeah, you would think I had two left feet, but." I actually do.
1: But that's that's not how it goes down, Carlos. It's very understated. uh, You You think I'd have two left feet. And then she says, I thought he was kidding. Yeah. Yeah,
2: that's right. That's right. And, and, and then it pans down and you see his two left feet or whatever. And it's briefly commented on, but then it's never talked about again. Like they don't bring it up again for the rest of the movie. And that's in the very beginning. And it isn't until the very end and you see him walking around and you realize, Oh shit, this guy has two left feet. Like it's so much funnier when it's something that you know is brought up ignored and then just kind of subtly comes back at the end like i was dying when he was so you've got the dog you've got at
1: the end you've got that kind of gag which is you know funny bit at the beginning payoff at the end and then you've got the through lines of many many gags and my favorite one we've mentioned and that's you know Catherine o'hara's uh questionable reputation and how it comes over again and again and again and it gives these two brilliant comedic performers eugene levy and katherine o'hara the ability to g- grow a gag uh, yeah. up until the end but they were clearly meant for one another uh what with their what with his budding um senior citizen tour at the end yeah the yeah end. No, it, it, and and the, the which credit cards should work conversation. Like the, little yeah. little pieces that are so true to life. Ed Begley in the supply closet talking about the different disinfectant, disinfectants that they need for different sized dogs. These little set pieces – that give yeah. these comedic actors all kinds of freedom and space to improvise, and it, it, it just one thing after the other. I, 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 this movie's one of my top twenty movies, maybe in, of all time.
2: The hotel manager is again another guy who's just like in a bunch of stuff, and you recognize him the second you see him. But yeah. it's just like a good character actor that you just—he's not one of those, you know, household names. Um, which again, I mean, you know, I'll say it again—is you know, one of the things I love the most about uh, these movies is you know giving all of these character actors this playground to just do what they do.
0: Yeah, no, it's it, it, it's wonderful um, to to see them get that opportunity. Uh, I, I kind of already mentioned. I think the the Fred Willard character here is is the one that I sort of. Uh, appreciate the most although i i do like his character in a mighty wind a lot too but um you know buck laughlin here as the commentator who has no awareness of dogs or anything about dog shows and yet is there to help commentate this supposedly i mean you would assume that he's maybe sort of a sports commentator and they've pulled him into this assignment uh, yeah, for does, the television network
2: and and that's the fred willard character doesn't have a yeah. clue no idea no.
0: But, it, but it's totally making every inappropriate joke about the handling of the testicles on the animals. Yes, that seems so the, funny. Yeah.
2: I was watching it, and, you know, I had to kind of correct myself a little bit, but, you know, after, after a little bit of it, I guess by the time... Are the hounds first or second? I feel like they were second, but I could be wrong. Um, but during the judging of the hounds or whatever, I was like, oh, my God, this is classic. It's like just like... Uh, uh, Cotton McKnight and Pepper Brooks and Dodgeball <laughs> and then I, I was like I was like, oh this is just like Dodgeball and then I was like wait no Dodgeball is just like this like yeah, this is where yeah. they got that like dynamic from uh,
0: right well yeah Willard going on about the you know maybe they should give him a little Sherlock Holmes hat and a pipe and they could have <laughs> <laughs> I think the crowd would really go for that I know it would get me excited I'm yeah
1: <laughs> Yeah, he's no. My favorite, my favorite Fred Willard line is that he's talking about a judge, and he's using masculine terms, and the guy, his 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 straight man partner says, "Well, actually, that's Mrs. That Da-da-da. He goes, "Oh yeah, that is a woman." <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: just I, little things like that. Jane Lynch. It might have been Jane Lynch when she was. It new. was. I, it I,
2: was I Jane Lynch that, actually. Where, yeah. Where
0: she's the handler, and he's like, "Oh, that's a yeah, that is a woman." Okay, yeah, yeah. That very funny stuff. Yeah, I mean yeah the, that's i mean Tom, i mean
2: that's uh, classic straight man like goofball playing off each other like that right. that is that is like comedy that's like a that's like a, like a master class in like playing like two actors working together in a comedic situation like they should t- I, teach that in schools.
0: i bet there is like 20 hours of cutting room floor stuff that would be worth watching oh, yeah. Oh, yeah from those guys For because sure. You know, what's in the film is amazing, but I I bet there's lots of tossed-away stuff that they they just couldn't find a way to fit into the film. Stuff
2: that's just, like, totally off the rails.
0: Yeah. Um, You know, so, yeah, from top of I do agree with Joe. I think this is probably the—well, poor Mighty Wind is probably the tightest of them, Um, just in terms of really developing certain things with the characters that do come to pay off later later on in the film— um, I think you know the, the cookie and Jerry that the flex their relationship and to have Jerry be the one uh, who's walking you know handling the dog at the end and you know but he's the guy who's triumphing over adversity it has kind of the biggest payoff in terms of the the ultimate uh you know who, who achieves the the win here and it, and it makes sense so you know I, I think I think there's a lot going for this film and I think even if you don't love dog shows I, I have a feeling this is one that a lot of people enjoy no matter what um i'm curious because carlos off mike you had mentioned that this was one that you knew your mom had loved over the years and watched what was it like i mean just in terms of finally sitting down and getting yourself to watch something that you'd kind of thought of as being trivial what was there something there where, with the reaction
2: yeah so you know like i mentioned earlier this is a uh you know, I or I didn't watch them in order. I said that a, a few minutes ago and yeah. this was the one I watched first. I didn't even think about like, Oh, I should watch them in chronological. I didn't think about the order at all. I was just like, Oh, this is the one that I think I want to watch first. And you know, a lot of that is because I remember, you know, my mom talking about it when I was younger and even kind of walking in on her watching it. And I used to play on cable, you know, at different times back in the day. And, uh, I'd be like, "Oh, what do you want?" be like, "Oh, Best in Show. It's a movie about a dog show." And I was like, "That sounds terrible." I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to I'm going to go into the other room. And uh and so watching it now like, you know, as soon as I was done, I texted her. I was like, "I just watched Best in Show for the first time." And you know, we were kind of talking about, you know, the gags we liked the most and stuff like that, but um but it is really good. And I mean, I should have watched it sooner. I mean, granted when I was like, you know, 14 or 15 or something, I don't know if I would have appreciated some of the subtleties yeah. as much as I do now. Um, but, but, you know, my mom's a crazy lady. Like I got, you know, <laughs> I got to say as far as like her film, you know, watching habits are like, I want to say, um, I th- I think it might've been the first or second date that her and my dad went on. She convinced him to take her to see, uh, the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover. <laughs> That's an six. I might have been at the same screening. And I'll be damned if the... <laughs> I don't know that there is a worse movie to go yeah. on a first date, uh, especially with my father. Like, there is no way that they walked out of that movie and he liked it. If he said that he did, it was just because he liked my mom and didn't want her to, like, you know, not want to go out with him again or whatever. But, God, if I, if, I, if you ask me what is the one film that you could show your dad that he would like the least, it would be that movie. Uh,
1: uh, but I smell a future episode. I, lo- I love that movie, so I'm I fucking do down to watch that. I haven't seen it in a very long time, and I was talking about it recently. Let's watch a, The Cook. The thief is wife or lover. I'm down. I think I have a laser disc copy of it somewhere.
0: <laughs> so but, it sounds like unanimously we love best in show. Yeah. Oh god, yeah. Did,
2: did we talk about the opening scene and the contents therein? You
0: you made quick reference to I know we made quick it, reference yeah. to it,
2: but like you know like at least Kylie and I, when we were watching it, knew right away that like, you know, we were locked into this because you have this opening scene with um you know, uh, Posey and Hitchcock, yeah. Yeah, the yuppie characters and they're in therapy and you know, talking about, well, things have just been really weird since he saw us, you know, making love and you know, they start going into detail about it and stuff and then it pans down and it's their dog. Like, you know, they're in therapy because <laughs> their dog walked in on them having sex and he's been depressed. <laughs> you know, they even say he's been very depressed since then and you just see yeah. this this weimreiner just like moping like mm, you know, yeah, and, uh,
0: <laughs> and uh well that's what i love the projection of like what, yeah. what so many of us as animal owners do with our animals is to project these things onto that but they do it in such a terribly negative and destructive way that it is it's just so uh,
2: intense yeah. too you know yeah <laughs> right, but yeah. uh but it's hilarious and it really like sets i mean that is as good an opening scene as I've ever seen. To like yeah, same tone. And, 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 and it's it's the
1: a film. film. They end with it, and it's a yeah. bookend. Yeah, it's yeah. a bookend uh, because uh, they got a new dog, and their relationship couldn't <laughs> be better. And right. it's a <laughs> tiny yeah, dog that, hum- which, pumping which the leg the big, of the psychiatrist. Yeah, right.
0: It, the, the biggest concern of my uh, my daughter when we were watching this was they just got rid of the dog. What did they do with? <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is
1: America. I'll, yeah. I'll tell you.
2: I'll tell you what though. This really has nothing to do with the film at all uh, as far as, you know, usually what we talk about on this podcast, but I'm a sucker for a hound of any kind, man. I love that bloodhound. He was the fucking cutest, like just... Oh man, I wanna but I found you're not, Christopher you're not a hound
0: man. you're, you're a bloodhound man.
1: You're, you're, wait, I'm, I'm really, <laughs> yeah, but I found Christopher Guest's character of all of the characters in this film, the dog owners particularly, to be the least satisfying to me personally. Really? Real. yeah, yeah oh, I can't tell you why exactly.
0: Well, well, i gotta I gotta offer our listeners a little bit of a corrective there. I think it is one of the most fully realized performances. Of all of these films, that Christopher Guest role, Harlan Pepper, and himself, the whistling that he does there, that's just like, I mean, this is, he, I can't imagine him having, like, the time he must have spent to slip into that character and have it natural, the the ventriloquism he does, the work with the dog, the interactions that he has with the guys he's running the bait shop with, I don't know, I just, yeah. all of bottom i love that character Uh, I i think this is one of my favorites for him
2: i totally agree and kylie and i were even talking to my mom about it a little bit and one of the first things that you know kylie like went to as far as you know the bits that she remembered from the film and it was one that i thought was hilarious too was um harlan pepper and and actually this this brings me back to how i opened the episode in that when I was watching this movie, I kept thinking about Lynn Shelton because of the improvisational kind of dialogue thing and I think what I think what makes that particular um approach to filmmaking so rewarding when it's done right is that you get these very talented performers they'll you know kind of kind of just riffing and when they find something that feels right, just like taking it as far as they can and knowing that like. I don't have to worry about, you know, hitting these lines or whatever. This joke f- seems funny to me. I'll see how far I can take it and let them deal with it in editing. And sometimes <laughs> like, and sometimes I can yield really great results. It's just like it just goes on and on and on. And one of the scenes that does that so well is when Harlem Pepper is talking about, oh, yeah, you know, you know, when I was young, I used to be able to name every kind of nut. Yeah. Every, he's like he's driving his rv and he's like he's yes. like he's like yeah and and i don't know where that came from maybe it's because yeah. we lived in pine nut and i would just you know peanut cashew yeah. nut yeah. and then but then but then the part that the part that really got us is he's Gilbert, like he's no. like uh he's like macadamia nut that one used to send my mom over the edge like it would drive her crazy. it would really set her off or whatever uh I, you know i don't know why but it's just like when he, that bit it and and again it brings me back to you know thinking about that improvisational style because that scene in any other film where you had a like a like a strong script that you know where you know for instance like a Wes Anderson movie or like a David Fincher movie where yes. everything is so meticulously planned out and they know exactly what they want their actors to do what ex- the exact words they want them to say like it's all so specific that's something that would get left on the cutting room floor because it has nothing to do with the movie you right. like as far as narrative is concerned it is incredible it's like unnecessary you don't need it at all but it's so funny and i mean honestly it really doesn't even contribute to like his character development all that much you know it's just a funny bit that yeah came from an a really talented performer just kind of getting into the rhythm of his character and it's those things that make especially this movie i feel like a lot make him so funny is just that and like Another, you know, great bit that goes throughout the entire film is Jennifer Coolidge is just obsessed with getting Jane Lynch's character to wear makeup, just will not let it go. And every time it comes up, they're back and forth between the thing like Jane Lynch just trying to deflect like, oh, yeah, but I didn't really like it. And she was like, I thought it was great. She should have kept it on. And like it's those things are just hilarious. And again, they're like things that happen where the next scene has just started. And then you just start cracking up because you realize what just happened. Uh, And I think those are things you know i uh, you know like as we mentioned i hadn't seen any of these before but they're definitely films i'll go back to and i think those are jokes that will just continue to keep paying off Mm
0: -hmm. absolutely uh so in terms of payoff denali brewing the twister creek india pale ale how do we feel about this one guys did it bring the payoff that we wanted for an ipa
2: i think i might be slightly biased because i like the guy that gave it to me a good good friend of mine (laughs) Um it is it's kind of malty but I I kind of I don't mind it. You know like uh it's it's not as
0: it's not as sweet as as some of those beers that we've talked about in in some past episodes that that have the the maltier IPA kind of approach. Um I I found it very drinkable. I mean I'm enjoying it. I'm not I don't dislike it. I mean y- it is, I think, more of an old school IPA in the sense that I'm not getting the juicy uh, aromatics or flavor that I get out of a lot of newer IPAs, including Yellow Rose. Honestly, yeah. um, I agree with that. But it's not like it's not crazy bitter. It's not something that I, that I think is uh, you know really challenging in terms of an IPA. I think it's I think it's a really drinkable one and and one that I'm enjoying and. Uh, I'm glad your friend brought it to us as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, spoiler alert: I did drink one of these yesterday, and I did enjoy it. I mean, I, it's it's on the maltier side from what I'd prefer, but it hasn't quite tipped over the edge to where I'm just like totally out. You know,
1: mm-hmm. living in these Corona times, we're picking up these four packs, and I'm confirming that you two will get two of them and I get to have two of them too. So spoiler mm-hmm. alert, I already had that yellow rose IPA, before right. we drank it together tonight. It's one of the best parts of port of porch bombing. One another is having a spare. If you get a four pack, uh, that no- when I said that nose was malty, I found it a little bit offensive for lack of a better word. I, <laughs> I-, I didn't think that I was going to enjoy the beer that we were about to drink together, but I'm kind of with both of you. I it does the job, but this Denali, our second beer from uh, Alaska, by the way, is not doing an exceptional job. But I believe that I'd like to try some more Denali brewing beer. It doesn't have that balance that we had the first time. That first beer was truly exceptional, and I feel like it's just a bad frame of reference, maybe, for the, the Denali. It's following. tough. To, it's
2: yeah. It's tough to follow that that first beer.
1: Yeah, and I, we're saying the same thing. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, very drinkable. A little more malty than I enjoy. Overall, drink very drinkable. If we
2: knew everybody's opinion on everything going into it, this probably, at least for me, would have been paired with Waiting for Guffman. Uh, that's my least favorite of the three that we're doing. Um, I suspect this will be my least favorite of the three beers we drink. I probably would have put Yellow Rose with Best in Show in terms of the quality of the beer versus the quality of the Um <laughs> But... You know, um, I'm very interested to see what you guys thought of the next film uh, yeah. because we did have a brief conversation about it uh, in programming this episode last week. Um, and so I will expound upon that a bit once we actually get into it. But A Mighty Wind is the movie we're talking about next, and we will get to that when we return. <laughs> Do it again, twi- again. I, got, I got to do it twice in one episode. <laughs> you sure did. Gotta love it.
0: It's exciting. Uh, so yeah, we, we, we have the uh, final of our trio here that we're going to be talking about with a mighty win. But before we do that, we, we can't talk about a film without a beer paired with it. And uh, this beer that we are pairing uh, is one that I brought to the table this time. This is a brewery that we've had recently on the podcast. Great Notion Brewing. Uh, They're out of Oregon, Portland, Oregon, and this one is a tart ale with blueberry that they call blueberry muffin. Um, As they describe it, this tart and whimsical blueberry treat will remind you of your family's freshly baked blueberry muffins. Let's see if that's true, guys, as we get this open and put it into our glasses.
1: Yeah, you're talking episode 87 just a few ago, David. We paired Great Notions Passion fruit mochi with uh, battle royale. Okay, oh, I'm getting a ton of blueberry off this. Oh yeah, you open that can like you say sometimes, David. It's an air freshener. <laughs> yeah. So,
2: so I've got a I've got a great notion brewing update. Uh, we've talked about it before on the podcast. I feel like every time Great Notion comes up, I talk about because you know we, we had that passion fruit mochi and it was amazing. As we all said great. in that episode, it was unbelievable. Unanimous. And, yeah, loved it. But but. The thing I've been wanting from them the most is I've been wanting to try one of their stouts, specifically the Double Stack. Now, I'm here to report that I did not get to try the Double Stack, but good friend of the show, Daniel, uh, I had I, I had asked him to pick up a crowler of, of some juice from me from Baba Brew House, and I went to go pick it up from him finally, and he threw in a couple of little bonus uh, beers for me because... You know that's the good man that he is, and one of them was the Great Notion Sticky Bun. Mm. Oh my goodness! It was incredible. It mm. was so so good. So we at some point, I have got a friend that lives in Portland. I'm gonna try to get her to mail us some cans from Great Notion of one of their stouts because we have got to we have got to yeah. cover one of those on the show.
0: Everything I've had from him has been top notch, but yeah, the, the nose on this, I mean, it's, you know, truth in advertising. It does smell like a kitchen has just been baking blueberry muffins and I'm, and I'm sitting there and it's wafting towards me as I'm, as I'm sitting at the table, salivating, waiting for this. Uh, it's, al-
2: it's also very popular um, in some of the beer groups that we're a part of, David. I see a lot of people mix this with the double stack. I've to heard make up yeah. to make a blueberry pancake beer a little
0: a little so, cuvee, yeah. yeah so maybe one day we some days dare to dream right. dare to dream right so we'll, we'll sip on this while we're talking about a mighty wind the third in Whoa. our Christopher <laughs> Guest Fred Willard <laughs> trip here um you know, this film, as Joe kind of alluded to earlier, kind of is, is based in the folk music community or, or in particular kind of the folk revival that came out of the 1960s, that revival that brought us such luminaries as Bob Dylan, um, you know... the, Lewin the Davis. Llewyn Davis, right? <laughs> <laughs> Revisiting the old episode. Um, but the idea here being, this is set, you know, this came out in 2003. It is set in that era. The idea is there is uh, a... A behind the scenes guy a manager right who has died recently and so a number of the acts that he worked with to help bring to prominence in that kind of folk revival area era are coming together to perform a concert in his honor and so this is a you know it it, it the premise is that this is a documentary that's being made about this buildup to the concert. So it, you know, it's chronicling the family members who are there trying to pay homage to their father, the, the acts themselves, the new main street singers, right. The, am I getting that right? Yes. Which is a group that sort of was a Nuftet, nine singers. <laughs> is that, <laughs> is that how you say that? No, Ted. Isn't that what he says? I think. Yeah. So we bring back Paul Dooley, the guy who got probed in uh, Waiting for Guffman. He he was one of the original members. But, they, you know, as as you would expect throughout the years, they brought in some new ones. Um, and a couple of those are John Michael Higgins and Jane Lynch. You have the duo of uh, Mickey and oh, my gosh, I'm going to blank here. What what it's Mickey and Mitch, Mitch and Mickey, Mitch yes. and Mickey, yeah, Mitch yeah. and Mickey. Um, who are eugene levy and katherine o'hara who are essentially a couple here again although one that has drifted apart over the years but they had a a moment where they were a duo um performing music and romantically involved and 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 that's kind of what they're revisiting and and then you also have the uh the the trio uh of the folksmen who here finally Right. right third film bringing back those three guys from spinal tap mckeon shearer and guest together to be part of this other trio to, to kind of the compliment the folk complement to spinal tap here with the folksmen and and their three people so the idea of bringing these people getting them together for a concert at town hall in new york city that's going to be broadcast on pbs or pbn i think is what what they call it in the film yeah, uh, yeah, and, it's the and,
2: public broadcast network
0: right 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 so the lead up to that so the, you know there's your basic premise but very much in the same line as giving these people the liberty to kind of expound and and improvise on these characters in these interviews and these various little vignettes that they have um, as, as they're kind of working towards the build-up of this concert.
1: Yeah, when this one came out three years after Best in Show, Best in Show being both a critical and, I think, box office success for Christopher Guest, There's a lot of anticipation there. You add the reunited spinal tap and there's a lot of expectation. I cannot tell you why, when I saw this movie, that it did not hit all those same sweet spots as the first two that we talked about today. And I have not watched it since, what, 2003 until a few nights ago. And I got to tell you, uh, uh, what a dummy move. Because (laughs) there's a lot of brilliance in this movie. It's not up to best in show standards for me, but there is a lot here. And uh, for me, it, it centers around the relationships of the bands, specifically uh, Mitch and Mickey and yeah. the uh, the Folksman Trio, less, less so much the new Main Street singers, which, tends, which sounds to me like it's more about criticism of folk, new folk, reinvented folk music, more than anything else.
0: Yeah, um, I, seeing, I, I, seeing the uh,
2: seeing the Spinal Tap reunion, I mean, incredible. Uh, it was just such a joy to see those three guys in the same room uh, together again. Uh, they're all such great performers, but you know, it's just it's just one of those things. Like you know, it just. It takes you back to something that you love, but it's giving you something new to love and something totally
1: different or not totally different, but pretty different. Well, uh, you're watching—you're watching three masters who created this genre back together, who are clearly enjoying the energy in the room. They're bouncing off of one another. Yeah. And and Harry Shearer, who's so back good. for the first time, it, it is incredible. he's amazing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I—I really—I remember this film. I. I guess somewhat similar to Joe, it felt at the time like a tiny bit of a letdown from what I had expected based on Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show and kind of the lead up to it. But I think I I quickly realized that that was a folly on my part. I remember rewatching it once it came out on DVD and, and really seeing, oh, no, it's all there. I mean, the the, the strong character work that they're doing the the great comedy and and if anything i think what i was what i was not picking up on as much that first time seeing it and what i've seen left in subsequent viewings is that there is a lot more interesting work going on in terms of the complexity of how the characters evolve over the course of the film especially with mitch and mickey because this is the idea is this couple that were once A very successful performing duo that had broken apart, broken up, you know, Mitch, the Eugene Levy character had been sort of left in total despair. And so it's like him kind of coming back and he's he's kind of like a casualty. Right. I mean, they don't really say it, but he seems like he probably got into some drugs at at some point and uh, and has gotten kind of addled in his mindset. And and he's kind of finally coming back. Uh, you know, Mickey, on the other hand, the Catherine O'Hara character has weathered it fairly well, but has kind of just put that behind her and she's kind of coming back into it. It's there's some real poignancy there that I think in these other films isn't so much of a concern. There's really an attempt to tell this story of characters evolving over time that is still funny. But actually, has a kind of emotional quality to it that I think the other films don't have as much of, um, and and it's also there, I think, to some extent with the Folksman um, characters. But they, you know, it's, they didn't have an acrimonious split; they just kind of fell out of favor, and then. But them coming back and finding each other and being able to perform this music again, um, I, I think there's just there's still a lot of funny in there. There's a lot of comedy, but I think this one. Is doing something a little bit more dramatic with the characters than the other films are.
2: One of the things that stood out the most to me about this film was I felt like it was a more ambitious performance from Eugene Levy than what we've seen previously.
0: Very different. Yeah,
2: he's very and, transformed. And I loved it. Like, yeah. I loved him in this. And that, you know, again, like, as with all of these movies there's these really subtle bits like <laughs> Eugene Levy is a very downtrodden character you know he's very kind of melancholic and throughout the entire thing and the poor guy is just stuck in this hotel room where his neighbors are just constantly having very vigorous sex <laughs> the entire time and he just yeah. can't like rehearse his songs or have a normal conversation and it's right. like it is hilarious and i mean what?
1: It's an obvious bit, but it's a very genius bit. The sexual frustration yeah. between these two characters, their trademark song, they actually pause and kiss in the song. Yeah. Right. And is that going to happen or not? In the rehearsal, it does not. It, I, let's not even spoil it. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't in the <laughs> final show. But there is a sexual tension there. And, of course, he just gets to hear banging the wall, literally banging everything. Yeah, single time his room's died. shaking. Right, every single time he's trying to do this documentary with the documentarian of the film, and then have guests over to his hotel room. Hmm. Yeah.
0: It. I mean, it, it's. I think it's It's. It's an interesting film because it's subtler in many ways, but then it does go broad. I mean, the Fred Willard Willard character here, I, I had mm-hmm. mentioned in the earlier part, is, is also a favorite of his, and <laughs> it is yeah. so so crazy i mean the idea that he was this kind of semi-successful stand-up who parlayed it into a one-season sitcom that was chock full of catchphrases that he just can't help but try to repeat and inject into everything else that he's ever you know that he's doing including his work with because he's like the manager of the uh new main street singers or whatever it it's hilarious i mean he he is but with the the frosted tips and the spiked hair, I mean, he's just this. This is wonderful to see him in that kind of role.
1: He, and yeah, a theme hilarious. in all of the films of having a larger view of your own career or importance than you actually should probably be giving yourself. Yeah, mm-hmm. right, right. <laughs> and then, and then, I got to tell you, one of my favorite parts of the entire movie takes about one second to execute, and it's Christopher Guest when he sings there is a line in one of the songs and i'm going to try to do it now where he goes well he, yeah well and he and he performs it so ridiculously i've been doing that ever since i saw the movie to the chagrin of everyone in my home
2: <laughs> yeah i mean you know we talked about the, okay well okay so first well, sorry uh sorry uh first what i'll say is that I mentioned it briefly right before we took our break, Um, but there was a conversation off mic um, when we were planning this episode, and it was that we were trying to decide which of these films to do, and me having no experience with them kind of was like, you know, I was just going off base of what I've heard, and the two of you were like, well, you know, Waiting for Guffman and best in show are largely considered to be the best ones. Whereas a mighty wind kind of falls off and isn't considered to be as good as the other two, etc. And I'll be honest, I thought we had decided on not doing a mighty wind until <laughs> I saw Joe post on Facebook that we were doing all three. And I was like, Oh shit, I got to watch three movies. <laughs> but, um, like I said earlier, waiting for Guffman was my least favorite. I really liked this movie a lot. And I like just about everything about it. And also, like we talked about with Waiting for Guffman, there's some really great like music in this movie. Uh, and as you would expect, the first thing that I did when I finished this film was I looked it up on Discogs to see if I could get the soundtrack to it or if the soundtrack even existed. And let me tell you something, it is very expensive.
1: Wow. <laughs> and
2: I don't know that I will ever have it, but the music in this movie is fantastic. And I really, I, I really hope to own it someday. Um, but... You know, it's just another one of those things that perfectly execute. There's so much about this movie that is perfectly executed down to, you know, the songs that they perform, uh, the scene where the new main street singers come out and open with the song that, you know, the trio was supposed to open with that (laughs) kind of, yeah, wandering. So it's a good song. It's like an actually good song. Uh, Uh, but I think that, you know, all the performances are great. I especially love Eugene Levy in it. Uh, pr- might be my favorite performance of his across the three of these films. Um, but everybody else in it is great as well. I think Jane Lynch particularly stands out in this film as well. Um, I I really enjoyed her and John Michael Higgins' performances. Um, and you know, we could talk about the re- reunification of Spinal Tap all day long. But you know, yeah, this is a fantastic film.
0: But after shit, si- go ahead, David. And it was interesting because this was, you know, the Folksmen, the group that the Spinal Tap guys did for this film, was something that they had actually created well before this film. They had done it on Saturday Night Live. They had interesting. Done it I on, did not know that. Yeah. So, th- so this was something like kind of almost like another alter ego of theirs that they had created. That you know, guests found a way to kind of work into this film. And I don't know if some. I imagine that maybe at least a couple of these songs were actually. You know composed before the film um for that but it but it's just great to see them able to work that kind of thing in there what kills me is you talk about the soundtrack i mean i should have bought that back in the day but um they actually did a small tour where they as these three acts performed in various venues and one of them was in boston where i was living near at the time And I kick myself to this day that I did not make it a priority to get down there to see that because I know that would have been a transcendent experience had I been able to see that live. Yeah.
1: Wow.
2: Yeah, that would be amazing to see.
1: With this film, though, and watching three in a row in very short order – you do begin to see the formula of the Christopher Guest film. Mm-hmm. I went ahead and was enjoying myself so much that I watched Mascots. Okay. yeah. The, the latest film that he did for Netflix, it's um, available there now.
2: Got a lot of the same people in it from what I it's, saw. It's, it's
1: the, yeah, there's a few that are gone. There's a few that are there. But um, it, 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 it's missing the depth and the breadth, I think, of these last two films. It's a weird evolutionary change. It it doesn't go anywhere really, really new. Um, Mm -hmm. Because that formula is all there. The the where we're headed, is it a dog show? Is it a folk singing reunion? Is it a theatrical performance? The character build over the greatest portion of the film where we each get to do these vignettes, and then you've got the twist that's going to keep us from getting to our goal. It might be that Mitch is missing, uh, to, to sing. It might be that the, um, that cookie busts her knee during right. the, uh, the dog show. I, I failed to mention that her walking out to, at, during best in show when she runs out because winky wins and, and she's still got that crazy limp thing that she's mm-hmm. doing with her leg. Just <laughs> makes me laugh and laugh. But, um, yeah, you know, and then of course the epilogue where we revisit the the characters either six months or twelve months later. But in Mighty Wind, out of nowhere, Harry Shearer decides that he's a, I guess a transvestite,
0: a transgender.
1: He, Thank he's, you. He's a woman. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he, but he performs with that same bass that he has in the yeah. during the original thing. Yeah. ah, yeah, super low voice. <laughs> And then he giggles like a like a like a lady afterward. That made me laugh so hard because I guess the outfit that he had on, the costuming that they had done, and yeah. it was just such a random throwaway concept. And then Christopher Guest nails it with uh, most dedication to character by having that haircut that he had. I mean, he literally did the horseshoe bald haircut with like like a mad scientist yeah. haircut, and just like fully commits. Those little touches about these films are what make them. Was the icing on the cake uh,
0: well i i was
1: <laughs> i was actually going to ask how
0: we felt about the the transgender punchline of the it, that was something that made me a little tiny bit uncomfortable about the end of a mighty wind i i get it it's a funny gag at the time i thought it was hilarious i'm sure but i think think <laughs> Thinking has evolved on transgender identity at this point. And yeah. I don't know if it's okay to make that a punchline right now. I don't know. I th- th- on, on one level, the folksmen embrace it, right? They, they don't question it. They, they are supportive of their friend, and, and he is who he or she is who she is at the end of the film. Um, but it's clearly the juxtaposition of, you have this deep baritone voice, yeah. and yet you're trying to be a woman, is is the contrast is is a joke that's trying to be made is it is it right to be making a joke about the mismatch between one's physiological you know vocal cords and one's
2: emotional identity gender expression
0: expression, yeah yeah, that you know and again i'm not you, you know i don't want to rob joe of what he feels like is a is a fun moment in the film But it did cause me a moment where I was like, that was something that I laughed at 17 years ago and didn't really think twice about. Now, in 2020, I do think twice about it.
1: (laughs) But I see I go back to what I said first, and it it makes sense, Carlos. Let me let me answer first quickly. The guy that um, confused transvestite and transgender may not be the right person to answer the question. But to (laughs) me, it goes back to the idea that there is no malice here. He is not making fun. He is just saying that's all true. of these types of characterizations are worthy of film representation. I never took it as a dig on the community. I took it as a this is something that's happening in society. Carlos, I okay,
2: school me. I know, so I I actually am falling very similarly to where you are on this, it, but what but my what I was going to say varies varies slightly from what you said, and it's just that. There is a lot of like nuance and complexity to the way that Christopher Guest portrays these things, whether it's the representation of gay characters in his films, or whether it's this. And like David said, no one in his group or in her group uh, tries to diminish the way that they express their gender identity. You know, mm-hmm. like no one is trying to tell Harry Shearer's character. like you're being ridiculous or like you know trying to shame them for this decision that they're making it's something that is very it's just accepted which i think is a great way to uh represent this kind of um you know identity politics or whatever like um if someone that you're close to this is how they feel you should go with them on it you should accept them for who they are and you should encourage them to express themselves in a way that feels true to them and that's what happens in this movie it just so happens that the person who this is who is going through this happens to have this incredibly deep voice right right. which is funny like it is a funny gag you know whether it's politically correct or not is another conversation entirely. But I think that Christopher Guest is able to handle these things with enough tact that we can both laugh at the gag and understand that this is a real thing that affects real people. And is not something to be ridiculed or mocked. And I, I can, I can understand how somebody would see this and be upset if they are part of the community that is being referenced in this scenario. And I would not tell them that their interpretation of it is wrong or that their feelings are invalid. But at the same time to me, granted someone who is not a part of that community, who has not experienced the hardships that that community experiences, I can both see it as, you know, this is the thing that happens and we accept it for what it is, you know, for people, for who they are and encourage them to be the truest forms of themselves. But this is also kind of a good bit, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I think that it's. I don't know if Christopher Guest would make that joke today in 2020 if he were making this film. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like, just based on what I've seen, he is, you know, aware enough and he is sensitive enough to these things that, you know, at the time, it, you know, I'm sure he saw no malice in it, but now, you know, maybe thinking has changed a little bit. And I will agree with David that. You know, whether it was in Waiting for Guffman or whether it was in A Mighty Wind, you know, it I, I did do a double take at some of the stuff and, you know, thought about it. Oh, you know, uh, kind of caught me off guard for a second or I had to think about it a little harder. Or is, is this OK to laugh at? But then at the same time, going to Joe's side of the thing,
0: it is a good it's a good bit. It's fun. Yeah. You know? Well and I, and I and I think what what helps sort of balance the whole thing and make me feel okay like I I I feel like in all of this and all of these films where he's coming from he's not interested in knocking down humanity he's not interested in, in showing us uh where we go wrong but he he's interested in showing us that even our small failures are in their own way little triumphs and and I think that Christopher Guest comes across as a very sympathetic filmmaker to me in the sense that he's he just finds humor in everything that we do. He finds humor in every human endeavor. And what he does in these films is kind of tease it out with these great actors that he pulls together and these funny little scenarios that he concocts. And so, yes, I, I ultimately land exactly where, where y'all are, and I still think these are very worthwhile films I think they stand up over time but I do think it's interesting that as barometers of the time period that they were in I think in terms of depiction there are some things that that would happen differently
2: okay and you're totally right but I think but I think really what this is more about is perspective on things and you know maybe part of Christopher Guest's perspective is you know colored by the fact that he is you know just a normal white dude uh, that hasn't really had a lot of struggle or trials and tribulations as far as like, you know, him being allowed to be who he is and stuff like that. But there are like different camps of people. There are people that are very serious and that are very, you know, here. this is the harsh reality. What can we do to fix it? And, mm-hmm. there, are, and there are other people that are like, Yes, there are serious things going on in the world and they need to be fixed and I'm interested in being a part of the solution, but also humanity is funny. Like The things that we do as people with higher consciousness are ridiculous and absurd and as a species, human beings are inherently absurd and funny and we can point those things out and laugh at them and rather than succumbing to, you know, the nihilism of what could, uh, you know, otherwise be interpreted as just like never ending hardship and, you know, struggle and strife or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think that he is the type of person that is like, yes, there are bad things happening. And like, I think some of that comes, I think that's a part of how he presents these things is, you know, again, showing all these people accepting Harry Shearer's character for who he is or who she is. But then also being like, yeah, stuff's kind of funny sometimes, you know? Um And it's a, it's a nice, it's a balance that he achieves to a certain degree, whether he would do it today is, an, you know, again, another thing. But I think that it's something that we can all have fun with. And also, you know, if we have a problem with it, it was a different time, you know, kind mm-hmm. of thing. And so, um, I don't think it is malicious or offensive enough to taint the the work that was done. How do we feel about the beer?
0: <laughs> There's no taint there. I mean, <laughs> uh, when it when it comes to blueberry muffin, I'm enjoying this. I mean, I do think the aroma is almost um like it's it's hard to match that i mean like it does smell like fresh blueberry muffins coming out of the oven the flavor is not quite as intense as that but it's damn good i mean i i've been enjoying sipping on this thing the whole time
1: i disagree david there's a lot of intense blueberry flavor in this all right and uh you know i mean i'm trying to remember as best i can that sour we had of theirs you know a few episodes ago
2: wasn't a sour the passion for mochi
1: yeah the the yeah wasn't it a sour what was it no it was a wasn't it an ipa
2: hold on i have the can
1: (laughs) i've got the internet i've got a, a spreadsheet It's a New England IPA. Right. There you
2: go. It's a uh, milkshake IPA. The passion fruit mochi.
1: I'm looking back at uh, just the, the Great Notion we had a few episodes ago. That milkshake IPA that they had infused with a lot of fruit. I mean, clearly, they're trying to experiment and have a good time up in Great Notion. If you look at the news cycle from about a month ago, they got a lot of press and a lot of different places about their reaction to COVID. I guess they're putting out some kind of fancy new app. And, uh, I have not heard one, of any one of, of this. The artic- Go ahead. I have not heard of any of this that you're referencing. One of me. the articles said that you know they had done 5,000 barrels last year with the intent of doing 10,000. That's the level of growth that they're seeing. In 2020, it's going to be more like 7,500 because of the pandemic and the effects of it. So they're still in a growth situation because they're putting out beer that I think everyone around the country is trying to get their hands on because of the the beer buzz that goes on within trading groups and uh, pl- uh, different kind of online delivery services. And the reason is because they're putting out great beer. This is a delicious beer. And I think that the, the blueberry fused with the sour they've done a really 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 good job here
2: look mm-hmm. i mean here's here's my perspective on the whole thing now granted we are very far removed from uh granted we are very far removed from the community that they are a part of or mm-hmm. oregon is very far from south texas where we live but i mean not only are they putting out great beer and not only are they experimenting with that beer and trying to do new things and push the envelope of what beer can be but it seems to me as if they're also not experiencing some of the problems that can come with that i mean i have not heard of cans exploding from great notion i have not i mean i have not heard of them you know shooting for some crazy style and falling dramatically short i feel like everything they do whether you know whether they immediately hit the mark of what they're trying to do. They're getting really close every time they attempt something new and ambitious and that excites people. And it makes people from all over the country try to find a proxy to go to the brewery, get it for them and ship it off to them, you know, cause you know, they're not uh, just a street, distri- you know, they're not as, they're not distributing as large as like someone like Elysian brewing who is from the same area in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, so, you know, <sighs> whoever is in charge of crafting these recipes is a genius. (laughs) And whoever is in charge of quality control over there is meticulous in a way that I cannot fathom because they have not seemed to have had any problems in either one of those departments. And for a brewery that is experimenting and pushing boundaries the way that they are doing, it's very rare to see them with, you know, n- with seemingly no missteps, and if they have had any, very few, and I think that that really, um, you know, speaks to craft beer enthusiasts and gets them excited to try to get some of that stuff in their fridge.
1: David, you David, you brought this to the party. What do you think? I think it's very tasty.
0: I'm enjoying it a lot. Like I said, I mean, I think the only the only disconnect that I have is that. It's amazing how much the aroma evokes uh, blueberry muffins. The flavor, definitely I get blueberry, but I'm not getting, like, the bready, like, you know, that that element of the muffin. But it's weird that it's there in the aroma. So, I don't know. It, it, there, there's something kind of uh, um, magical that they're doing. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean, for me, I... I... I understand what you're saying and like I think I agree with it to a certain degree. I I mean I'm getting I'm not getting any like breadiness necessarily but maybe some of the spices or like seasonings okay, maybe like yeah, some of the cinnamon yes. that would be in a muffin or whatever. Yeah, maybe, I'm getting yeah. a little bit of that but I think to me what I'm smelling is going to affect what I'm tasting. Like those yeah, two senses are so sure. linked together that mm-hmm. even if you know, you put a clothespin on my nose and said, you can't smell this, you know, like I I would get a little bit of it, but in conjunction with that smell, all of the senses that, you know, would dictate the flavors that I'm getting are working together harmoniously in a way that is just giving me that experience of a blueberry muffin, uh, right. whether or not it's all on the palate the way that I would, you know, want it to be, or that it maybe should be or whatever, But the experience, you know, and I think that's the, you know, I think that's the case with everything really, not just beer, but almost any kind of consumer product or whatever, you're, you're building an experience, you know, and the Mm -hmm. experience of drinking this beer is fantastic. And I think that that is one of the most important things that a brewery can do, like from the can art to the smell, to the taste, to the excitement of getting it, it is an experience to be had. And that's what makes Great Notion exciting.
0: Agreed. I'm looking forward to more in the future. Um, this has been a fun episode. I guess, I, I've, yeah, it's I've been, been a long one. <laughs> yeah, but it, but it's I think a, a very important one in in a certain way. Like the, these are films that you know they had their audience, and and I think people have certainly seen them over the years. But I, I bet a number of our listeners haven't watched them, or maybe all three of them at least. And and I think would be well served by doing so, especially in light of Fred Willard's passing. But also, I think, you know, Carlos, you made that connection earlier with Lynn Shelton and her work and the, the kind of improv, improv,
2: improv, improvisational,
0: <laughs> improvisational work. <that laughs> We're three beers out. in, fellas. <laughs> That has come out of uh, her work, but also you know some of the filmmakers she was associated with, like the Duplass brothers, Joe Swanberg, Swanberg, who who
2: I would like to I would like to take a second really to um, you know since you in the time you have been at my alma mater, the university you currently work at, Uh y'all had the opportunity to bring Joe Swanberg to our somewhat modest town here to screen one of his films, which. I mean, I wish that I had been a student at the time, or at least been aware of it, because I would have loved to have gone to that. But that's, I mean, you know, that's a fantastic thing that y'all did.
0: It was wonderful, and he's a and he is a great guy, and he and a totally generous uh, filmmaker, and, and actually a beer lover. We we really? need to try to get him on. Yeah, no, he's this 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 is a tangent, but when he came to town here, we didn't have a brewery that was doing anything. You're I think, lying, re- not a single one. No, railroad was just kind of getting started up. B and J's was just kind of, but none of them were actually producing beer. And uh, and he came here, and he was a home brewer, and he was coming from Chicago, which had already started blowing up. And he was asking us where could he go for some good beer. You know, we brought him to Surf Club. It was fun. We we had you know we had some pints there, but um but there was nothing truly local at that point, which which was sad. but you know, obviously, Drinking Buddies. We'll have to do an episode on Drinking Buddies at some point. And uh, I, I love and that movie. Swanberg. yeah.
1: But but yeah, we I think, swipe, we'll Skype him in.
0: Yeah, I would. I'll, if, if, I'll, we'll, I'll shoot him an email. There we go. Get her done. Um, but but the but the point is, like, I think that these films point to a different way that films can be made. That should should be explored more by filmmakers i mean i think that when people do it well with with performers who are really adept at improvisation and can do this sort of work it can come out in amazing you know fashion there there's just some results like these three films here i think there's a handful of others we could point to but i'd like to think there are more out there to be made
1: yeah
0: yeah all right, Carlos, where, where oh, do we point oh, our oh, folks? Oh,
1: <laughs> David, you need to talk about next week's episode, and you're the one to talk about it.
0: Yes, that's true. All I, right. I agree with that. Let me look up the name here. Sorry.
1: Okay. We've got to making Carlos earn his money. Okay. So next week's episode is going to be something new, something that is uh, COVID-19 related. There's another, like, huge film festival, David. You brought this one to our attention. What are we doing next week? So for our
0: listeners who are already in tune with this, they probably know already. But for those who aren't... There is a film festival, a global film festival, that is being launched on YouTube on May 29th. It is called We Are One, and it's actually a collaborative enterprise with a number of film festivals, including Berlin, the BFI Festival, Cannes, Guadalajara, Jerusalem, Mumbai, all these, at Tribeca, all these different film festivals, Sundance, and what they're trying to do Kind of similar to what happened with uh, um, South by Southwest and Amazon Prime a few weeks back, and and you can listen to our episode there, um, is they're trying to bring a few of the films that they would have been programming to YouTube for many people to be watching, for everybody to be watching. That's going to open up on May 29th. Um, It's going to run through June 7th. And what we're going to try to do is we're going to pick a couple of those films. We don't know what they are because they have not listed these films yet. They, they're going to be, I i imagine at this point, they're just going to be announced on May 29th when they become available. They're going to announce these films. We're going to pick a couple. We're going to watch them. And our next episode, will be taking in a couple of those. And it'll actually give our listeners some time to watch those even after they've listened to us because it'll still be open till the 7th.
1: I can't wait. I like the... I like these little opportunities to watch the films that would have been in these film festivals when you and I would not be, tra- when the three of us would not be traveling to say South by Southwest together, or many of the film festivals that are involved in this new enterprise. But if you check out our Facebook page and other social media, Instagram, we will let you know which two films that we're going to watch the moment that we decide.
0: Absolutely.
2: Yeah, it's going to be a good time. (laughs) I'm excited about it. It's fun when we get to do different stuff.
1: Well, Carlos, take us out. (sighs) Sorry. I was looking at
2: Joe Swanberg's contact information. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, this has been a jam-packed episode. Have you had anything from Lone Pint Brewing? Have you had Denali Brewing? Have you had Great Notion Brewing? How do you feel about Christopher Guest and his entire body of work? A specific, uh, if you want to really hone in on it, these three films that we talked about today, let us know. Twitter at Beer Movie Show, Instagram at Beer and a Movie, Facebook.com slash Beer and TX, Beer and is our home base. You can find a link to listen to all of our past episodes there. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. That helps us out a great deal. We are currently in a weird state of episode programming, because there's no new films for us to go see in theaters, so let us know what you like, what you don't like, and what you see that, and, and what you want to see more of in the future. that will help us create new episodes that you're really excited about. You can help us create episodes specifically for you. That's so much fun. Uh, and if you know Joe Swanberg, send him our way. Hit us with his contact info. Tell him that we're looking for him. Uh, But I think that even though this has been a uh, double-stuffed episode, a super-sized episode of Beer in a Movie, it has been a great episode of Beer in a Movie. Honestly, one of my favorites we've done uh, in quite a while. Um, And I'm excited about the next one and excited to see everybody again. So until next time...
0: Excuse me if this is off the subject a little bit, but just take a guess at how much I can bench press. Come on, what do you think? (laughs) Take a guess. 315 pounds at the top of my game. Maxing out.